I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians uh, chapter 1. This morning uh, we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. And in our first uh, two studies in Philippians, we saw, first of all, Paul's thankfulness for his partners uh, in the gospel. Uh, And then we saw uh, the nature of how Paul prays for his gospel partners as he prays that they would have a a love that was a discerning love, uh, which uh, would prepare them for the day of Christ and lead to a fruitful uh, life. And and now as we turn to Philippians 1, uh, verses 12 to 18, we're going to see how Paul intends to prepare the Philippians Uh, to have confidence and joy in the midst of suffering and trial. So let's look at Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but to thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's ask for God's help now. Lord, as we come uh, to your word, and as we join the Apostle Paul in his uh, prison cell, so to speak, uh, we pray that you would, you would use these words to change our perspective on the trials and difficulties that we find ourselves in. And you would give us eyes to see your purposes and that you would have confidence in knowing uh, that you are the God who works to complete those purposes. Lord, help me to speak clearly. Help us to listen and hear, to uh, embrace the word in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when Paul uh, writes this letter to the Philippian church, he's in prison for telling people about Jesus. And since uh, starting uh, the church at Philippi, Paul had continued to uh, walk around and uh, travel and proclaim uh, the gospel, the good news that Jesus had uh, died and been raised for the forgiveness of sins. And like at Philippi, God had blessed Paul's uh, gospel ministry so that people responded by putting their faith in Jesus. And as a result, new communities of, of Jesus Uh, followers continue to form across Asia Minor and Southern Europe. But Paul's unwavering commitment to proclaiming Christ had landed him in prison. And we're not certain exactly where Paul was uh, in prison when he wrote this letter. Uh, Paul was imprisoned for the gospel multiple times. Uh, One of his uh, contemporaries, Clement at Rome, suggested that it was as many as seven times. And those imprisonments took place in, in various places. Uh, But the strongest arguments for where Paul might be when he's writing this letter are either in Rome or Ephesus. Traditionally, Rome has been uh, the the favored option, but neither case is conclusive. And if that's the sort of thing that you're interested in, I'd I'd just direct you to pick up a study Bible this afternoon and uh, look at the introductory notes and, and sort of assess the different arguments. But for our purposes, I don't believe Paul's location changes the substance 
of what Paul says, and so I don't want to spend uh, more time on that here. What we need to know is that whether Paul was in Ephesus or whether he was in Rome, Paul was a prisoner. It's likely that his imprisonment was more like um, a house arrest where he was bound to or under the close watch of a Roman uh, guard. That's how we see Paul's imprisonment at Rome described in Acts uh, 28. There he's still able to uh, see and talk to other Christians. Uh, He has some uh, degree of of, uh, freedom, uh, even though he's, he's under this house arrest. And yet this wasn't the Amway Grand that Paul was staying at. He's in chains. His freedom is restricted. He can't go where he'd want to go. He can't do all the things that he'd want to do. Uh, And he's attached to some uh, burly, stinking, muscle-bound Roman guard 24-7. Now, how might you have felt if the person who started your church, the person who was one of the key leaders in the early church, one of uh, this, this this early movement, was thrown into prison. Well, from the Philippians' perspective, you can imagine that this was a cause for some concern. This was their beloved Paul, this great pastor, church planner, missionary, whose courageous uh, ministry had, humanly speaking, been the cause of their conversion. They would have uh, heard the various reports of how Paul was was ministering boldly and zealously for Jesus. He was at the forefront of the the gospel expansion as it went out to the ends of the earth. And now, Paul's in prison. It seems that Paul, and more importantly, his, his gospel message, were victims of a government shutdown. Now, you can understand, perhaps, how this news would have deflated the Philippians and discouraged them about the prospects of Paul's ministry and the gospel advancement. Paul, their star player, was out of the game and relegated to the bench. Or that's what it seemed like, at least. Given the the seemingly dire circumstances which Paul found himself in, we might be surprised by the, uh, the buoyancy and enthusiasm that we read coming from Paul's prison cell. I want you to know, brothers, Paul writes, knowing that it might be hard for the Philippians to believe apart from his reassurance, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has not hindered the gospel. But if you can believe it, it's actually served to advance the gospel. Paul's assertion in verse 12 is astonishingly sunny for a person in prison. There's good news from Paul's prison cell. And the natural question uh, that this unexpected statement provokes for us is, how could this be? How could uh, you have joy and optimism and confidence when you're hated and you're locked up and you're limited? Most simply, we want to ask, how does Paul find joy in this trial? But before we consider how, we would do well to consider why Paul thinks it's important that he shares this with his partners in the gospel. Paul's not just meaning to reassure his, his gospel partners, the Philippians, that he's okay. Right? He, he's intending to do something more. He's intending to help the Philippians with their circumstances. The Philippians themselves were suffering for Christ. In Philippians 1, 29 and 30, Paul writes to them, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. 
engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. Now, the Philippians might not have been locked up for the gospel, but they were facing trials of their own as believers. Well, in our passage, Paul is giving the Philippians a window into his trial so that they would be able to find confidence and joy in their own hardships. But it's not just the Philippians who are meant to be instructed by Paul's example. When we see Paul's confidence and his joy despite the disruption which had come on his own life, it prompts us to ask the question of ourselves. How do we respond when trials come into our own life? Do your circumstances quickly strip you of your joy when things don't go your way or how you had planned? Or inversely, what in life makes you happy? What gives you joy? What do we find, uh, how do we find that beautiful feeling when everything's not going our way? Far too often, our joy or lack thereof is circumstantial. When people think the way I do, when I get recognized, when there aren't hindrances or hiccups to what I'm hoping to do, I can be relatively happy. Many of us find that our our confidence, our joy, is oftentimes tied to the circumstances that we find ourselves in in life. And so the result is that our emotional life often looks like a turbulent year on the New York Stock Exchange. We're just going up and down, up and down. Well, Paul helps us to see that, that while we don't need to ignore our circumstances or their difficulties, there's a way to be liberated from the up-and-down, circumstance-based approach to joy that we're so often pulled along by. Paul knew what it was like to be in hard times, being assaulted, imprisoned, agonizing over the health of the churches, embroiled in conflict. And still, Paul was able, in his prison cell, to tap into a deeper, more secure reason for joy than his circumstances. So Paul's able to help the Philippians, and he's able to help us find joy in trial. Now, how exactly he does that, you'll just have to listen and find out. But our roadmap to that answer will have us look first at how the gospel advances through external opposition, second, how the gospel advances in spite of internal rivalries, and third, how the nature of the gospel helps us find confidence and joy in hardship. Now, in verses 13 and 14, we have the first of two ways in which the gospel really advanced on account of Paul's trial. His imprisonment had resulted in the gospel moving forward because uh, by it, the message of Christ had become uh, made known through the whole imperial guard and to many others as well. Paul's imprisonment had resulted in an unexpected ministry starting up. Prison ministry had maybe not been the plan that Paul and his co-workers had drawn up when they figured, how do we reach the world for Christ? It wasn't part of their initial ministry strategy. But planned or not, this is where Paul finds himself, under the watchful eye of an imperial guard. Now this is is likely a reference uh, to Caesar's special bodyguard unit, who were called the Praetorian Guard. They were an elite group of about 9,000 soldiers. They were stationed primarily at Rome, but uh, they were also stationed elsewhere in the Roman Empire. You might think of them akin to uh, Secret Service uh, Navy SEAL hybrids. And whoever they were, 
Paul had them right where he wanted them. The Roman government uh, was generously sponsoring Paul's personal evangelism ministry. As they sent these soldiers, guy after guy, to Paul's cell or his house or wherever he, he was so that uh, they could be evangelized. And in some cases, as the Lord gave faith, catechized and discipled. Paul realized that he had a captive audience as he spoke the message of Jesus. Now just think for a second what it would have been like to be one of these uh, big Roman guards, to be chained up to Paul. All he ever wants to do is talk about this Jesus fellow. You can imagine him uh, complaining back at the barracks to one of his, his buddies. Who? Oh, some Jewish teacher that Paul claims was, was crucified by his countrymen and raised from the dead. Oh, why'd they crucify him? Oh, Paul says uh, that he says uh, he, he was God and that he came for the forgiveness of sins. You can maybe imagine the, the, the dialogue and whether they thought such a message was confusing or compelling or, or incoherent or inviting, you can imagine how this word would have passed through the battalion of guards as they came and had their shifts in which they watched Paul write letters to the churches and talk with other Christians and engage them personally in evangelism. Right? And just see Paul lock, locked in, looking them in the eyes and, and urging them to put their faith in Christ. We might infer from Paul's comments here that the dominant question that he asked while he's in prison wasn't, why am I here, Lord? Paul knows the fundamental answer to that question. He knows that that answer will never change. Wherever he is, whether he's free or in chains, whether he's in Jerusalem or Rome, Paul is there so that Jesus will be trusted in and loved and worshipped and obeyed. The question that Paul is interested in is not why, but how. How is Jesus' agenda to be advanced through my current situation? If God has deployed me here, I know my basic mission. Make Jesus known. So the question becomes, how do I do that here in my trial? And his answer in this trial was that he had a new mission field to whom he could bring the hope of Christ. Bible teacher Dennis Johnson draws our attention to the point this way. He says, Paul has been set free from a petty preoccupation with his own comfort. He's been liberated by the power of a message, a gospel, a piece of unimaginably good news that has captured his heart for an infinitely bigger cause than himself. Now his personal circumstances don't matter so much, except as they provide a platform for getting the good news of Christ out to people everywhere. It's sort of like how... Certain people are gripped by a desire to um, make spaces beautiful. Right? That's, that's not me, but some people have this gift. They have this eye for design and color and the arrangement of spaces. And wherever they go, they can't help uh, but think of opportunities to, to transform a room or a house. And so uh, you maybe have that friend. They, they come to your home and you know what they're thinking. They're thinking, if only you would paint the walls these colors and move the couch uh, this way, then it would be okay. 
right? There's something, they value something as, as beautiful, and that shapes the way that they walk into every situation. They see every situation through those eyes. Well, that's Paul with the gospel. Because Paul has been arrested by a love for Christ, he doesn't think, first of all, what his circumstances mean for him personally, but he thinks about what his circumstances might mean for Christ and his fame. When Paul's plunged into to this trial, because he's been liberated by a message and his heart has been captured by a cause bigger than himself, to use Johnson's words, he sees these circumstances as an opportunity, an opportunity to advertise the worth of Jesus. Now that's the first surprising way the gospel is advanced. Far from limiting his ministry, Paul's imprisonment has brought him into a new field of Christian service. Now, Paul's imprisonment also had a second positive effect on the advancement of the gospel, though. We see this in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Second way the gospel is advancing through Paul's imprisonment is that his imprisonment somehow has served to, to spark uh, or to ignite a more confident, a more assertive, a more courageous witness among the other Christians where Paul was. Now, usually when someone sees someone being uh, punished for a particular action, that serves as a deterrent. I think of how when I was in high school, I had a friend whose driver's license was suspended for a year because um, he got caught street racing. His, his punishment was a deterrent to me. The next time I got behind the wheel, my foot was a little lighter on the gas. But that's not how it went with Paul's imprisonment. Contrary to normal expectations, Paul's trial, uh, his trip to jail had served to deepen the courage of this local church so that they were speaking about Jesus more freely uh, over the dinner table and in the marketplace. Paul's chains had, had proven like a beacon that just uh, drew people's attention to the power and worth of Christ. Other Christians were beginning to notice Paul's blossoming prison ministry. They saw how Paul uh, was willing to gladly endure prison for the sake of Christ. They may have heard murmurs of conversions and transformations among the Roman guards as a result of Paul's imprisonment. It was clear that the gospel was not and could not be hindered. Though Paul was in chains, the gospel continued to surge forward. It wasn't bound. The Holy Spirit used Paul's imprisonment to, to stir Christians in town to action so they became confident in the Lord. So then it wasn't only through Paul's personal ministry that the gospel was truly advancing, but in this trial, the message of Jesus more, was more widely and more boldly broadcast than it would have been otherwise. God had orchestrated uh, Paul's ordeal in such a way and for such a gospel gain as could not have been otherwise imagined. And just as we might be surprised how Paul's trial had really served to see the gospel go out, we might also be surprised at how Paul responds to another part of his trial. The malicious motives of some of his fellow Christians. Now, some of those people had been uh, in, in town had been emboldened to speak the gospel of, of Christ 
on account of Paul's chains, they were, they were motivated by a love uh, for the gospel. They were motivated by a love uh, for Paul. But some in the church saw Paul's imprisonment as their chance, their chance to rise uh, to prominence, their chance to raise their profile. Paul, of course, would have been a natural leader in the church when he was free to minister. And with Paul sidelined, they saw this, this is our opportunity to sneak into that spot. Paul's chains were their gain, their chance to finally get the respect that they had been craving. Now, maybe you know someone like this, ambitious, calculating, fame-seeking. Even as it relates, perhaps, to spiritual things, you suspect that their motives aren't always so pure. And so if you're honest, you just sort of wish that these people would, would get exposed. Their true colors would, would be evident to other people. And when you think of them, they really grind your gears. Well, Paul's very candid that there are some people in town whose ministry is driven by ill motives. He plainly states that they're giving talks, they're leading Bible studies, they're evangelizing, not because they're driven to make much of Jesus, but they're driven by desire to make much of themselves. They're driven by selfish ambition, verse 17. They, they, these few people, they use ministry as an opportunity to increase Paul's suffering, to further afflict him, to kick him when he's down. Now, how likely is that sort of conniving ambition to drive you crazy? Yet Paul sees their ministry and he rejoices for a simple reason. Jesus is being faithfully preached. Now, but wait, you say, don't our motives matter? Shouldn't it matter that some people are using the gospel just to stick it to Paul? Shouldn't it matter uh, that uh, if the people who are leading uh, your Bible studies or preaching are doing so so that they can build up their personal reputation? Well, yeah, motives do matter. Paul will explicitly say later in Philippians that we should uh, do nothing from selfish ambition. The attitude of these preachers is sinful. It does need to be addressed. But these preachers, in spite of their ill motives, were speaking the truth about Christ. It's interesting if you notice how Paul speaks about uh, these preachers here in Philippians 1 and how he speaks to the Galatians about some of the preachers there. To the, the Galatians, Paul is livid. Right? He threatens that those who preach a different message should be accursed. But Paul's message, or his tone is different here in Philippians 1 because these believers were faithfully teaching about Jesus, even if it was for dubious reasons. They spoke clearly about Jesus as the, the promised Redeemer who came to die for sins and to rise again from the dead. In Galatia, those, those teachers, they were preaching a message which distorted Christ and the way of salvation. And, and that would result in the spiritual peril, peril of all who were uh, led astray by their message. But here in Philippi, in spite of, of these ill motives, Jesus was still being clearly portrayed. The, the way that man must be saved was clearly being presented. And so in that Jesus was being held up in his loveliness, Paul could celebrate that. He could rejoice 
Now, in this passage, we see circumstances that would ordinarily spell disaster. Think, for example, if you're in the business world. If you're running a normal business and you got thrown into prison and you heard word that middle management was fighting to uh, steal your spot while you were in jail, we would predict that this company was in trouble. And so far as those who hated the gospel, which Paul preached, were concerned, they had adopted an understandable strategy. Satan, you can imagine, plotted this out with his evil forces. Let's lock Paul up. Let's muzzle him. Stop the spread of this Jesus talk. But not only does his strategy fail, it has quite the opposite effect. The gospel actually goes out farther and to people to whom it would not have otherwise gone. And so Satan regroups and, and he, he, he thinks that he'll discourage Paul by an internal strife. He'll incite envy and, and selfish ambition and he'll demoralize the apostle. But once again, Satan's designs backfire on him as, as God uses the success of these preachers to encourage Paul and to encourage the church as Christ is proclaimed. From Satan's perspective, he did everything that you might expect him to do if his intentions were to silence Paul and make him miserable. Satan had a sound plan, and it might have worked, except for one thing. Satan, for all his craftiness and all his cunning, cannot, it seems, comprehend this one thing about God. God delights to bring victory out of defeat. It's his modus operandi. It's his mode of operation. Paraphrasing Calvin on this passage, he says, Satan had indeed attempted that the gospel would be destroyed. And the wicked have thought that it would turn out that way. But God has frustrated the attempts of Satan and the expectations of the wicked by taking the gospel, which was previously obscure and unknown, and making it well known. God spoils Satan's plan. Actually, we can put it even stronger than that because God does a double injury to Satan. God actually uses Satan's plan to accomplish his purposes. God finds a particular delight in taking what his enemies would use to defame him and derail his purposes and to use that to turn it into an eye-catching display of his glory. God delights he relishes the chance to show the futility of his enemy's plots, to take what was meant for evil and harm and confound his enemies by saying, I'm going to commandeer this opportunity uh, to let the world know how glorious I am. God's way of working through weakness and defeat is, is epitomized, of course, in the cross of Christ where the Savior of the world was put to death and his lifeless body was buried in the ground. And he would die to show that he had the power over death. He let the devil strike him so that he might rise and crush him. God's story is one of life coming out of death, of victory coming through defeat, of glory emerging through suffering, of strength being displayed in weakness. That story is being played out again in Paul's prison cell. All that was meant for evil 
and harm, the imprisonment, the malicious motives of, of these other Christians was done to silence the gospel, was done to steal the apostles' joy. But God used all of that to turn the volume on the gospel up and to increase Paul's joy, his rejoicing in prison. And Paul's telling this to the Philippians so that um, whether they wind up locked up or not, as they face suffering for Christ, Paul wanted them to see that suffering doesn't mean that God's purposes have been thwarted. He wants us to see that it's precisely in our trial that God is at work and that in spite of bleak circumstances, God is able to bring forth Christ-exalting spiritual life. But let's consider our response to our own trials. Perhaps most uh, obviously or, or, or most commonly consider uh, things with the coronavirus right now. Right? There's legal limitations, health limitations, social limitations. Many of us are frustrated, worn out by it. These restrictions, uh, they feel like these are hindering ministry that we've done before. But they cannot hinder God's purposes for the gospel to continue to advance. And if, as Christians, our affections, our hope, our joy is set on Christ and His purposes in the world, and if He's going to ensure that His purposes are going to advance even through or because of these seeming obstacles, then our circumstances right now don't need to rob us or hinder our joy. In fact, it's just in moments like these that, that seem barren, that seem empty, that seem bleak, that we're seeing in this passage that God does some of his most glorious, most eye-catching work. Do you know, do we know what God is doing in this season? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not yet. But we should be able to tell our kids, we should be able to tell our grandkids, I want you to know that this trial has really served to advance the gospel. I think that's a good question. How does this trial, instead of just how do we get rid of our circumstances, how in this trial is God at work to advance his gospel purposes in the world? Because he uses moments just like this to do that. What about the other trials of life? The cancer diagnosis that means that you've got to take regular trips to chemo, a prolonged hospital stay, unplanned relocation, a job that you find uh, absolutely uh, annoying, being mocked or attacked as a follower of Jesus. And these are hard things. Right? Some of them are really hard. We don't need to, to kid ourselves here. Paul is realistic. There is suffering, and these things are suffering. Do you think, though, that it's possible that Paul would endure those types of trials with confidence and joy? I do. And not because Paul was a, a spiritual superman, not because he had some sort of spiritual gift that we could never hope to attain to. I think that Paul would find joy in those trials, just as he did in his imprisonment, uh, uh, for the same reason. 
It's the same reason that we can find confidence in our trials. It's the same reason we can find confidence and and find a joy that, that doesn't ride up and down. So here's Paul's recipe for finding joy that's not enslaved to our volatile circumstances. First, because Paul had had his life turned upside down by Jesus, he's had his affections change, his priorities change. He's joined to Jesus by faith, he's gripped by a new love, and now Christ's purposes, seeing Jesus trusted in, Jesus adored, Jesus worshipped, that was what mattered most to Paul. Paul attached his joy to the success of God's purposes. And those are winning purposes. But second, Paul had a conscious understanding of God's ways in the gospel. He had a knowledge of how God works in seemingly upside-down ways. Paul understood that the nature of the gospel was a reminder that God has the power to bring life out of death and to bring healing out of devastation because that's the message of the cross. It's not just that the cross warns us that following in Jesus will involve suffering for him, but the cross reassures us that suffering, in suffering, God will turn that for our good. And when these two realities are held together, changed affections with our our hope, our joy, set on the purposes of God, and an understanding of, of how God works through weakness in the gospel, it changes the way that we live in the prison cell of adversity. We're going to live that trial then that we enter into with eyes that see the opportunities of how God is working and how the gospel might advance. I'm thinking of a woman in uh, our congregation who has used her hospital bed as an opportunity, like Paul, to share the hope that we have in Christ with those who came to care for her. I'm sure that that didn't make the pain go away, but it brought joy in that hospital room. It brought the confidence of seeing that God was at work there, extending the victory of Christ even through her adversity and her trial. Because she wasn't looking first at her her IV tubes or whatever else she was hooked up to, uh, but she was looking first to the purposes of her Savior and how those were going forward. So as the the grace and love of of God grip us, as we realize that there is nothing better, there is nothing more desirable than the love of God manifested in Christ, announced uh, to others and delighted in by others, as that, that purpose arrests our lives, as we've fixed our hearts on that purpose, as we remember that Jesus loves to bring victory out of seeming defeat, Our circumstances might not change, but we'll see God in our circumstances. We'll see God at work carrying out His sure purposes in a way that we don't want to miss. We'll begin to see His presence. We'll begin to see His power. We'll begin to see more clearly the advance of His gospel purposes. And in our trial, in our prison cell, so to speak, we'll be able to respond with confidence and joy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we admit that oftentimes...
Too often times it is easy for us to look at our circumstances and to grumble. Things are not going the way we want, the way that we had hoped. Um, people are not going the way that we would like. And we can be frustrated. We can um, be particularly afflicted by trials, confused by them. And yet, Lord, Paul helps us to see our suffering in a different light in these verses. And so I pray that you would give us more of that perspective, that we would, we would have our affections, first of all, changed so that what we want most of all is what you want, Jesus to be exalted. And then we would, Lord, see how you work in upside down and unexpected ways to bring forth your victory. And then you would give us eyes, Lord, to see in whatever trial you would bring us to the opportunities and ways that you might be at work to glorify your name. So grant this for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you uh, now stand with me as we sing our song of response, Rejoice, the Lord is King.
harvest receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless